Uh, he has been a principal investigator of numerous clinical trials for psoriasis, acne, rosacea, atopic dermatitis, skin cancers, and atop, or actinic keratosis, just to name a few. He's also an author of many scientific articles, abstracts, and posters. He's lectured extensively nationally and internationally. He serves on many advisory boards of several pharmaceutical consult or companies as a consultant, and he uh, volunteers for multiple local and national medical societies. Uh, please help me welcome uh, Dr. Leanne Kirchitz. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, and good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for hanging in here with me till the end. Now, those of you who were here in the morning during my morning lecture, I told you a story how I got involved with uh, general derm, especially with psoriasis and atopic dermatitis, uh, even though I'm actually a most micrographic surgeon. So what I'll be discussing now, it's a little bit more appropriate that goes in with my training, really. We're going to discuss wound care. Now, when I say wound care, most of you are going to think about really uh, diabetic ulcers and stasis dermatitis, venous ulcers. I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to discuss mostly the wounds that we create. Believe it or not, in dermatology, we create wounds every day. I do 40, 45 biopsies a day. How many AKs do you guys freeze? We discussed about PDT earlier. Cryosurgery, you create wounds. Even just by using Effidex for AKs, you create wounds. So how do we handle those wounds? How do we treat those wounds? Or how we should handle uh, those uh, wounds? So that's what we're going to take a look at it today. And also, with, we're going to discuss some new products that are appropriate for those wound care. Now, this is my conflict of interest statement. As I already mentioned, I do receive funding from several different pharmaceutical companies because of the studies I do. And the studies that I'll be discussing today is uh, supported by Ortoneutrogena. Now, well, whenever you make a wound, the first thing, depending on who you are, what your specialty is, you're going to think about different things, right? If you're a surgeon, the first thing you're going to think about is, let's make a fancy flap or graft. You know, most of us, as most micrographic surgeons, we like to do that, um, those big flaps and grafts. Or maybe just put some stitches in and do a simple closure, elliptical closure, after an elliptical excision. Well, we've got to think about it. What's best for our patients? What's the cost to the society? Um, how is that wound going to look? How is the, what's the patient preferences? What's the patient's condition is in that requires appropriate treatment? So maybe doing a closure should not be a right thing. Maybe it's not the first thing we should think about it. Can we make it simple? Can we make it easy? Can we make it inexpensive? or uncostly. So second intention healing, actually, uh, it's a forgotten art. But every time you do a biopsy and you don't put a stitch, shave biopsy, if you don't put sutures, think about it, that's second intention healing. That's what we are doing. So we need to consider those things. Now I have, you know, I do a lot of most, uh, most surgeries on elderly patients. Most of them are not interested in how they're going to look, what's going to happen. They just don't want to deal with another surgery. They don't want another lidocaine shot after the, uh, after the layers because they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to stay another two hours in the office for the closure. On the other hand, there are some patients that you have no choice, but you have to put those sutures because if you have somebody who's on, let's say, Coumadin, who's got a pacemaker, 
who might be allergic to epinephrine, that you cannot use Lido with epi, you cannot use uh, electrodesiccation, and then they are on Coumadin. I call those people with triple whammies. You know, you're stuck. You have no choice. You have to put those stitches right there and then to stop the bleeding. So sometimes you have no choice. You have to do it with those uh, patients. Then I have some patients that they don't want to even hear about it. Right after I take the layer off, they are clear. They want to go to a plastic surgeon. That's fine. That doesn't break my heart. I will get a plastic surgeon for them and let them close it. But the patient preference, the cost, then nowadays, you know, the co-pays, the deductibles are so much that every time you do a closure, fancy flap, or graft, it's going to cost the patient another 20%, 30%. Now you're looking at a couple of hundred dollars. Well, maybe they don't have that extra money to spend it. With the economy down like this, maybe they don't want that closure. So it's really important to customize what we are doing for the patient care uh, as long as it's not medically necessary. Now, in that patient that, who's on Coumadin, you cannot use electrodesiccation, you cannot use Lido with Epi, certainly it is a medical necessity to close that patient. But somebody else, you got about a 1.5 centimeter wood on the chink, it's going to close, it's no big whoop. It's going to take four to six weeks, but it's going to close. So it, those are important considerations when we make that decision. Okay, now that we decided that we're going to let that heal by itself with second intention healing, what do we do? How do we treat that wound? We almost are so used to use topical antibiotics all the time, polysporin, neosporin. Uh, however, we don't use those really for antibiotic purposes. We use them because they are nice moisturizers. They are in an ointment base, and they do a nice job for um, occlusive healing purposes. We should be able to get, we should get out of the habit of using those topical antibiotics. Number one, we all know about MRSA. We all know about antibiotic resistance. So we should be much more aware and conscious of not using topical antibiotic ointments for anything and everything when it's not necessary. Just, you know, we put it under the Band-Aid and put the Band-Aid on the biopsy site. Well, there are other things that we can put in on the Band-Aid other than a uh, topical antibiotic. Number two, as you know, neosporin is probably the number one contact allergen in this country. And I think last year or two years ago, um, bacitracin was number one too. So, again, all those topical antibiotics are competing with each other to be the number one contact allergen. We should be thinking about it twice to use them inappropriately. So, those are all important issues when it comes to the second intention healing and how we treat the wounds and how we um, dress them. Then, when we pick an agent, we want something that's going to work fast, we want something that has a nice moisturizing base. We want something that doesn't have any side effects or it's not going to cause contact dermatitis. It's not going to cause antibiotic resistance. And also it has good healing properties and hopefully avoiding the excessive scarring because that's the ultimate goal. We want to make that uh, wound heal nicely and not cause any scarring. So how do the wounds heal? This is actually from the Bennett surgical, uh, Surgery book. The bottom line is, you know, the patients come and says, you always see that thick crust, and they all, no matter what you tell them, they always listen to their friendly pharmacist or friendly neighbor who told them, don't put that Band-Aid, let, let the air come in. So you end up with this thick crust, and then, of course, they run into trouble. You don't want that crust on that wound. 
Why is that? Why is that that we don't want that crust under that, on that wound? Because you want that epithelial cells be able to migrate from one end of the wound to the other. And the only way they're going to be able to migrate is when there is no crust, when the road is open, right? If you have a huge truck in front of you, you won't be able to get to the other side of the bridge. So that is it. And how are you going to accomplish that? By keeping that wound nice, wound nice and moist. That's the only way you can accomplish that. You want a nice, moist environment so that the epithelial cell will be able to go underneath smoothly. If you have a big, thick crust, that ain't going to happen. So that's why you don't want to open that wound open to air as the patients think it's the best way. This is Dr. Frederick Moss. That's, I was trained with him. He was the uh, founder of Moss Micrographic Surgeon. This is actually at his uh, 84th birthday in 1994. And, um, you know, he's opening his birthday card. He used to come and teach us every lunchtime uh, and show... He didn't basically did surgery, but he did the lectures every lunchtime. And he was the biggest proponent of second intention healing. And believe it or not, he was a general surgeon. He was not a dermatologist. And, uh, but uh, he, found, he was the founder of the most surgery, and he, he almost let everything heal with second intention healing. This is Madison, Wisconsin. This is, uh, you can see the Capitol building. This is Lake Mendota. It's a beautiful, beautiful place in July. You don't want to be there in January when I started my fellowship. So this is the clinic building, and they have moved now, but this is where everything happened. And we used to see about there were two attendings on each side and then one fellow on each side. And uh, we used to see about 40 people every morning and do MOS on 40 people every morning. You can imagine that we won't be able to close 40 people every afternoon. So that's why we let a lot of things heal with second intention healing. And guess what? It worked pretty well. Now, if you look at the studies, basically, if you have a dry wound, it's going to take about uh, the percent of the wound resurfaced by the epidermis. You see that it's going to take much longer, almost seven days, versus the slope. It's much more, uh, um, the inclination is much more uh, higher with the moist wounds. Basically, in about two days, you're getting there, the surface, uh, the percent of the resurfaced the wound by the epidermis. It's much bigger uh, and earlier with the moist wounds versus the dry wounds. I'm just going to show you something that you may not, because I always tell every patient, you know, it's going to heal. It's going to heal, no problems, and they don't believe me. And then they come back in a month or six weeks, Doc, you told me, but we didn't believe you. And this is the first time that I also didn't believe my attending and Dr. Mose that it's going to close. So this is the tip of the iceberg. You see it. This is a squamous cell carcinoma. And this is after what happened. And everybody blames the most surgeons that we make big wounds, right? We give people big holes. Dr. Mose, God rest his soul, he used to say, and he was a very stoic German man, and he used to say, you know, I didn't put the cancer there. I took the cancer out, which is now you sort of don't want to tell that to the patients. You've got to be a little bit more sensitive and politically correct. But it's the truth. The cancer is there. All we're trying to do is to take the cancer out, and that's how you create a big wound uh, because you're following the roots of the cancer. Uh, so I don't know how to put it more politely and politically correct to the patients. Sometimes I think about it, but that's really the bottom line. This is about four weeks later after that wound, four to six weeks later, second intention healing. Look what happened. This is about three months later, 
yeah, there is a scar, but guess what? If you did that big flap or graft, there's still going to be a scar anyway. Maybe not the sh- same shape, but it's going to be a scar when you put your stitches. So the bottom line is it healed. It healed very nicely without any complications, and the patient was happy. And this is only three months later. I bet you if he came back in six months or in 12 months, it's going to look much better. Now, I'm not telling you go ahead and do this on a young lady or a young man who is very conscious of his appearance, but it is okay. If they are okay with it, it is okay. So, second intention healing is actually a very well accepted way after most micrographic surgery. And the way it's going to work is that you have to keep that wound nice and moist and so that the epithelial cells will migrate from one side to another. You don't want any scap formation. The way to prevent the scap formation by using an occlusive dressing, and that doesn't have to be a topical antibiotic ointment. The skin aging and the chronic wounding, it's very, very similar if you think about it. And then this is going to come back again later on about the scarring and the collagen redeposition. But if you think about it, the way that anti, um, the uh, UVB damages the skin and then you create reactive oxygen species, and that's almost like a damaging the collagen and that's like the, uh, creating a wound. What happens here, if you look at the intrusing and extrusing aging, there are a lot of similarity between the wound healing. If you, induce a, uh, if you create a wound or trauma, basically you're inducing inflammation, and then that activates a lot of uh, interleukins, which eventually causes metalloproteinase degradation. So metalloproteinase degradation causes the wrinkles because the collagen tries to keep, uh, regenerate itself, and every time they try to regenerate itself, they cannot do a complete job. You end up with wrinkles. And the same way, when you cannot regenerate that collagen in the wound healing, you're creating a scar. It's the same uh, way that it works. And then you have a lot of growth factors involved uh, with, this, uh, with this process. So anytime you do a laser procedure, it's similar. Anytime you do Epidex, it's similar. Anytime you do a biopsy, it's similar. So that's the uh, pathophysiology and mode of action that those things happen. Now, we're going to discuss a new product called uh, BFIN, which is trolamine sodium alginate. It's been around for a while in Europe. It's been in France. It's actually sort of a, um, it's there, uh, bacitracin or uh, polysporin. It's very commonly used. And in this country, it's indicated that it's, it's um, approved by FDA as a 510K device. And its indication is, its original indication in Europe, in France, was radiation dermatitis, actually. But it's also used first and second degree sunburns. It's used for minor abrasions, pressure sores, uh, any kind of superficial, superficial wounds, even full thickness wounds. So it has a wide variety of um, uses. Now... What's in it? It's very ironic, actually. You know, it has demineralized water. Now, French are great selling water. If you remember the Evian story, right? Who would have paid for bottled water in this country? Everybody, we used to drink tap water. Now, everybody buys bottled water, just like the Evian. That's how they started. French started that. And now, they got demineralized water and made a cream. So the mineralized water, actually, it's interesting because it penetrates more into the um, dermis. 41% of it penetrates into the dermis within one hour. So there is some science behind it. What that makes it is really a more moisturizing, humidifying agent. Then 
In addition to that, there is something called trolamine sodium alginate. That actually stimulates macrophage proliferation. Macrophage proliferation is very, very important in wound healing. If you remember the stages of the wound healing, there are three, uh, there are three stages, inflammation, proliferation, as well as maturation. So in one of those stages, the macrophage stimulation and the uh, attraction to the wound, it's very, very important, and that's where the BFN comes into play, and it basically enhances that stage. Uh, there are several studies if you look at one of the studies, basically compared to, uh, compared to the, some moisturizer, it uh, recruited three to ten times more macrophages. And the macrophage, and macrophage recruitment is going to increase the, um, it's going to speed the wound healing, basically. So it did deliver greater percentage of macrophages within four to 24 hours compared to Vaseline. And it does have some effect on IL-6. So if you summarize it, if you summarize it, it does increase also endothelial cell proliferation. It does decrease the collagen synthesis by dermal fibroplasts and then decreases the IL-1 alpha secretion. And those are all compared to white petrolato. So the bottom line is those are the two pivotal studies from Europe that trolamine sodium alginate, it increases the macrophage uh, attraction and recruitment. It does help the granulation tissue formation much faster, and it speeds up the wound healing. That's really the bottom line. So now, the original use, as I already mentioned, in France was for radiation dermatitis. So we're going to look at a couple of the studies for radiation dermatitis. Then we're going to look at a study that I did in my center for shave biopsies. Another study also I did for uh, Mohs micrographic surgery, second intention wound healing. And then we're going to look at another study that I was involved with, again, with FEDEX, with 5-FU treatment for AKs. And then the last study Dr. Del Rosso did in his center, uh, healing after cryosurgery for actinic keratosis. So we have about five studies uh, to look into and to see the effect of this trolamine sodium alginate and see how it works. Radiation dermatitis is really a very, very difficult uh, issue to deal with, especially with breast cancer, where the patients are getting radiotherapy, they are getting chemotherapy, their nutritional state is not right, their skin gets thinner, and the problem with the radiation dermatitis, it interrupts the treatment. It does depend on the fractionation, it does depend on the uh, number, the frequency that you're giving, it does depend on the dose that you're giving, it does depend on the surface area, so there are a lot of different factors that go in there. But the bottom line is it does happen quite often, and more, the most important problem is that it interrupts the treatment, and once you interrupt the treatment, you're going to chance the tumor to get more aggressive because you're sort of, it's almost like the antibiotic resistance or you're stopping the treatment, you're giving this uh, treatment, you're stopping the treatment and giving the treatment so the tumor can, be, can become resistant. Uh, there are different phases or I should say grades of the radiation dermatitis from zero to four. It just can be a faint erythema, a little bit of scaling or peeling or it can go all the way to bleeding open ulcerated wounds. And that's, of course, you have to stop the treatment. So you want to prevent that. Um, my, uh, my aunt went through this, and I had to ship her. She lives in New York, so I had to ship her 
boxes and boxes of tyrolimine sodium alginate, you know. And most uh, doctors, they are not aware of this product, that it's there too, and it can be used for radiation dermatitis. Now, some radiation centers, actually, they are involved with it, they are aware of it, but some don't. Um, so it is important, and, um, and I think the purpose is there not to interrupt that treatment and be able to continue it. And they t- one study actually sort of looked at uh, Vaseline versus the trolamine sodium alginate, and uh, Vaseline had no effect uh, on that. The Schumacher study, that's another study that they were able to actually... Uh, continue the patients with the uh, radiation treatment, even if they had chemotherapy, when they use this product as concomitantly. Now, the next study is uh, after most micro- second intention healing, after most micrographic surgery, and we compared bacitracin with the trolamine sodium alginate. It was a 12-week single-center study. I was blinded, so my coordinator knew and the patient knew what they were getting, but I was blinded, so I didn't know if they got the trolamine sodium alginate or if they got the bacitracin. We had about 25 subjects, and the inclusion criteria was they had to have a uh, wound about 1.5 centimeter or less on the head and neck area after most micrographic surgery. It didn't matter how many layers they got. And everybody was Caucasian. We had 17, 8 females. And then we looked at those patients, of course, at baseline by measuring the width and the length of the wound, and then we followed it throughout the study, and then week three, week six, and week 12. We also asked a questionnaire to the patient about the itching, irritation, burning, tenderness, pain, but we also looked at the application site reaction. We looked at contact dermatitis. We looked at irritation. We looked at infection, scarring, post-inflammatory, hyper- and hypopigmentation. So we looked at many different uh, variables. This is the bottom line. What you see is here, group one is the BFN group, and group two is the bacitracin group. And when you look at those, the baseline, the wound size was uh, 112 for the trola, I mean, sodium alginate group for the BFN group, and 101 for the, um, for the bacitracin group. So even though the fact that the BFN group had a larger wound size, and that's just randomization. You know, that's how they were randomized by chance. At week three, uh, the wound size went down to 22 millimeter uh, square versus 29 millimeter square for the group two. At week six, the whole wound, everybody's wound was closed in the BFN group, but still there were open wounds in the, in the uh, bacitracin group. At week 12, everybody's wound closed. Really, the bottom line is, as I I already mentioned, unless the patient is sick or diabetic or nutritional deficiency, every wound is going to close. Even if you spit on it, the wound is going to close. That's how the body heals. The question is, how fast it's going to close? Because that's a service that you can do that patient if you can make that early onset of action. You can make things work faster. As I already mentioned earlier this morning, in this country, everybody wants things yesterday. Everybody wants to get better yesterday. They don't want to wait. So if you can make that faster, then really you're doing a service and the patient will remember you. So here's uh, 10.16. So this is the baseline. 
and his 11.8, that's week three, that one is already closed. And you can see that this patient wasn't compliant. You can see there's a little bit of a crust there. Probably he didn't wear the Band-Aid every day anyway. But the wound is closed in three weeks very nicely. And that's after six weeks. Uh, it's, all, it's very nicely closed and the crust is gone. If you look at the global assessment, we also did global assessment on those patients. And then um, that very effective consideration was at week three was 66% very effective for the BFN group, 41% for the tracing group. If you go all the way till the end, 92% versus 80%. So again, the investigator global assessment, that was me and I was, re- I wa- remember, I was blinded, so I didn't know who was using what. So you can see that investigator global assessment throughout the study, including at week three, week six, and week 12, was in favor of the uh, BFN. But the gap is biggest at week three, again. So... Um, if you look at the application site assessment, there was significantly less erythema in group one with the BFN group compared to group two. Erosion was also slightly higher in group two with the uh, tracing group versus uh, BFN group. Inflammation was less in group one. And then there was really no, uh, nobody with contact dermatitis in group one. So both of those products, yeah, they did work eventually at the end, but which one worked faster? Certainly the BFN worked much faster, and I think that is the, um, that's the important issue. Now, the next one is, uh, again, was done in my center. It was an open-label study this time. We just looked at it. How does it affect how does BFN work if you do a biopsy? And instead of putting a polysporin, neosporin, on the Band-Aid, if you put uh, BFN or you tell the patient to use BFN on their wound care. So it was a small study. Of course, it was IRB approved. And then um, inclusion criteria was just a biopsy on the head and neck area. And then we looked at them at this. Now that I had the experience that it worked fast with the most wounds, I wanted to look at it early on. I didn't want to wait three weeks. I wanted to look at week one and week two. I wanted to see how fast this is working. So here, using our previous experience from the most wounds, we made the protocol in a way that I was able to see the subjects at first week right away and then week two. So, and then we did the same thing again. We had an investigator global assessment. We asked the patient how they felt, uh, you know, they felt a questionnaire about the itching, scarring, irritation, and all that stuff. So, here's your uh, baseline uh, wound size at week one. Already 51% of the wound was decreased in size. At week two, 85%. At week four, 100%. Now, you can't get, uh, sorry, you can't get those results with your. Um, polysporin or neosporin. Um, 51% in one week, it's pretty good result. In uh, week two, 85%, it's pretty impressive. So I was glad that I was able to look at it er- at early on. And here are some pictures. And that's that. Oh, that's week four. If you plot it in a graph, you can see that basically the biggest uh, decline was in week one. Look at the slope. That is the sharpest slope. So the biggest decline was week one. And then after week two, you know, it's a slower decline. It's, just, uh, it's not the, sh- the slope is not as sharp. 
But again, that shows that early onset of action for the product, and that's really important. If you look at the IGA, Investigator Global Assessment, 35% was uh, very effective in week one, 50% was moderately effective. So if you take those week two, that number goes up to 46%, and 43% week four, 92%. So uh, basically, slightly effective is disappearing at week two. Everybody is either moderately effective or very effective. Okay. So the next study was done again in my center, and we compared, we wanted to see, you know, everybody complains about Effidex and Carac. We already heard it. They both are very irritating, but they work pretty well. So what can we do to make the patient's life easy so that they become more compliant and they don't complain about the irritation? Can we use a product that's out there uh, to decrease that um, irritation with those uh, five, uh, topical 5-FUs. So this was, a, again, single-center study. I was blinded, uh, but the patients were not blinded, and the coordinator was not. We had 23 subjects, and we looked at them baseline, week two, week four, week six, week eight. Now, this is a little bit of a complicated study because first we had to create the irritation, then evaluate the irritation. If you have no irritation, there is nothing to evaluate, right? So there were four groups. Uh, one group got CARAC, and we, the, we had a comparator arm here. So we had one group got CARAC, which is 0.5% topical 5-FU plus the BFIN, and the other group got, again, CARAC plus the white petrolatum. We used Vaseline. The other, group got, the other arm got FEDEX 5% 5-FU with BFIN, and the other arm got um, FEDEX plus Vaseline. Is that clear? So we had four arms. With two of them with different 5-FUs, CARAC and Effidex. And then each arm had a comparator, BFIN versus uh, white petrolatum. The improvement, the primary endpoint was investigator global assessment. We measured it on a scale of 0 to 6. 6 is worsening, 0 was all healed. Of course, we looked at secondary endpoints, application site um, Application site problems such as erythema, irritation, inflammation, all the same stuff that I have done with the MOS study. Okay, the way it, it worked out, first we have to create the irritation, remember? So we gave the topical 5-FU to the patients, and they, each patient had to have at least three AKs on each cosmetic unit. Cosmetic unit can be each chick the forehead, the nose, upper lip, or the chin area. So we had four cosmetic units, and they had to have at least three actinic keratosis in a cosmetic unit in order to be included. Once they were included in the study, they were randomized either to 5-FU, 5%, which is FEDEX, or CARAC, half percent, 5-FU. Uh, and then they were sent home, and we told them that first use the product for two weeks, and then come back. If they had irritation, then we randomized them either into biofin or to, um, to Vaseline. If they didn't have irritation, we told them go back home, use it two more weeks, and then come back. And then when they came back, if they had enough irritation, we randomized them to either biofin or to Vaseline. If they did not have irritation after four weeks, they were screen failures we did not include in the study because, as I said, there is nothing to check. If there is no irritation, then there is no reason for them to be in the study. 
And this is on the BFN group. This is at the baseline when they were randomized. And then that's week two. Right away, they tolerated it very well, and the irritation inflammation is gone. And that's at week eight. That's, it's all gone anyway. By week two, it was gone. So one interesting thing we had was we thought that, I, this, I always thought that Efidex is more irritating. But it turned out that Carac was more irritating. So we had to subdivide into two groups to look at the results. So with the Carac patients, um, when we analyzed those separately, 40% of the Carac patients were completely healed or almost healed at week two versus the Vaseline. So there was nobody healed in the Vaseline group at week two. But 40% of the, uh, for the patients in the Carac group with Biofin was either healed or almost healed. So that was pretty significant. And then also 40% of the subjects treated with um, uh, Biofin were completely healed versus the 16% of the group in white petrolatum at week four. So you're getting pretty significant results uh, of uh, uh, Biofin versus the uh, white petrolatum. If you look at overall, so if you put both groups together, CARAC and the Efidex groups, then we had a little bit of different results. 36% of the subjects with BFM was almost healed or completely healed versus the 25% of the subjects that used white petrolatum. Now, the numbers here are sort of close, but still in favor of BFM. And the numbers was, is, is close with the white petrolatum because the Efidex people did not show that much irritation. They were not as irritated as the Carac people. It's very interesting. So that's what happened here. But bottom line is the whole results were in favor of the BFM versus the white petrolatum. And does, you can help those patients, either Carac or BFM, it doesn't matter. Even if you use Aldara, they are all irritating. That's the bottom line. They are all irritating. And you can make that treatment more tolerable for these patients with a simple use of BFM then it's gonna be, life is going to be much easier for them, and you're going to get less phone calls, and life is going to be much more pleasant for you. So the next study is Dr. Del Rosso did, and he wanted to look at the cryosurgery on actinic keratosis, and if you use the BFN, how fast they're going to heal. So this was investigator-blinded study. Again, it was in his center, 40 patients, and they... Um, they had target areas, either the hands, dorsal forearms, forehead, cheeks. Uh, and he did, by the way, that should be cryosurgery, not cryotherapy. Does everybody know the difference between cryotherapy and cryosurgery? Cryosurgery is when you freeze an actinic keratosis. That's CPT code 17,000 and 17,003. Cryotherapy, when you spray the, spray the hot liquid nitrogen on somebody's face, let's say for uh, acne. You know, like in the old days, people used to do that with um, um, CO2. So, uh, I mean, uh, f uh, frozen ice. And that is cryotherapy. That's the CPT code 17340. Nowadays, with Medicare looking on us and all that auditing, it's very important to put the right word with the right CPT code. If you're freezing an AK, that is cryosurgery. The CPT code is 17,000 or 17,003 or 17,004, depending on how many you did. If you're spraying the liquid nitrogen for acne, that's cryotherapy, CPT code 17340. 
please don't misuse them because we're going to have a lot of audits. The government has hired I don't know how many people um, to audit all the Medicare charts. And the way they're going to get paid is by the percentage of the money they penalize the providers. So it's like the old, uh, old system of, uh, you know, go get the killer and then we'll pay you type of a deal. So that's how it's going to work. So we have to be really very careful with the little nomenclature, and they're looking for every reason to collect money back so that they get paid. Okay, and that's on the sidebar. So what happened was the uh, patients were instructed to use the BFIN two times, twice a day on the areas that he froze, and then uh, they gave them a diary, and they wanted to know how fast those things heal. And then the patients came back at four weeks. So if you look at the... Uh, time of the healing or the number of the days to heal, dorsal hands with BFN was um, nine days versus the moisturizer was about 11 days. Dorsal forearms was 10 days versus 13 days with the moisturizer. So basically all along through all the bars, you can see the light blue bars are the BFN and number of days to heal and the purple bars are the moisturizer number of days to heal. And there were BFN group in every, in every location um, did better than the regular moisturizer. And uh, in some locations, much better. For example, if you look at the forehead, the difference is big there. Nine days versus 12.6 days. Um, dorsal hands, nine days versus almost 11 days. So there are some uh, average, probably three-day or four-day faster healing uh, with the beef in three days uh, in most places. So again, you look like a hero if you give them less um, of a Band-Aid treatment and less... Uh, problems for three days. So the bottom line is, again, BFM was faster than the uh, Vaseline in this case, and that's an over-repeated uh, you know, story. That's, that's the story. That's the message that in every time we tried it in the cryosurgery, in Epidex, in uh, shave biopsy, in most micrographic surgery, in any wound that we created, BFM worked faster than any other, uh, um, any other stuff that we use that's either be the bacitracin or the Vaseline, and those are the most commonly used stuff. Okay, now I'm going to talk a little bit about a new hemostatic agent, and um, this is a new powder. It basically stops the bleeding, uh, and we tested this in most micrographic surgery again versus the sterile foam compressed sponge, which is basically it's a gel foam. Gel foam is the most commonly used hemostatic agent in dermatology. That's why we picked that. This topical hemostatic powder has a potassium iron salt and a hydrophilic polymer powder. It sort of creates a seal uh, through the iron-mediated conglomeration of the serum proteins, and then it dehydrates the blood. That's how it works. It's a 510K device, and it's basically indicated for minor external bleeding and that type of stuff. It might have an antimicrobial efficacy. We don't know, and it's not an FDA-approved indication. That's why I have a question mark there. So this was, again, single-center study, and this, you couldn't be blinded. So I was not blinded because you're trying to stop the bleeding after most surgery, and it's impossible. You cannot be blinded. And one is a sponge, one is a powder, so there is no way I could be blinded. So this was an open-label study, and we had 24 subjects. Uh, at we, our primary endpoint, we basically timed how long it took, how many minutes it took to stop the bleeding. 
And then we also looked at the global uh, wound healing, and then we looked at application site reactions, and of course the subjects had a questionnaire about itching, burning, all that stuff. The inclusion criteria for most micrographic surgery for basal cells, squamous cells, on the head and neck area, and we wanted a wound size of anywhere between 0.5 centimeter to 2 centimeter. We also put, in order to make life difficult, we also put uh, in the inclusion criteria that 50% of the subjects had to be on an anticoagulant, either Plavix, aspirin, Coumadin, something, NSAIDs that um, increase the bleeding time. So group one was the typical hemostatic powder group. Group two was the um, uh, gel foam group. So group one had a median uh, of 52.5 seconds to achieve hemostasis after the first surgery, after the most first layer, and then group two, which is the gel foam group, was 60 seconds. Uh, if you look at the second layer, group one, the top powder group had 32.5 seconds to achieve hemostasis versus 120 seconds with the gel foam group. So after the second layer, there is more bleeding going on. You know, remember, you're getting deeper, so that makes sense. You're making a bigger hole, and you have more bleeding, so it took longer to stop with the gel foam versus the new topical hemostatic powder. If you look at the wound size, how are you going to measure the healing process, right? So we looked at the wound size again, and uh, if you look at the wound size at week 12, uh, the wound size was 182 millimeters square versus 161 square millimeter, I should say, at week 12 in the wound size for the gel foam group. So that was also less healing in the wound size uh, with the gel foam and more healing with the topical hemostatic powder. If you look at the global assessment, 58.3% uh, of the group 1 subjects had global assessment of very effective wound healing at week 3 versus 25% with group 2. 100% uh, at week 6 with the powder, 50% with the gel foam, with the, uh, with the gel foam, and then 100% at week 12 with the powder, 67% with the gel foam. The very similar story again. You're seeing most of the results early on, and then that the difference is sort of getting smaller and narrower um, at the end, towards the end. So most of the time, wounds are closed pretty well, but they need a little bit help, and if you can help it in the beginning with an agent that's going to make that faster, that's where your uh, role is going to be. If you look at the scarring, 100% of the subjects in group 1 had no scarring at week 3. 83% had with the group 2, which is the gel foam group. 92% of the subjects in group 1 had no scarring at week, four, at week 12. 42% of the gel foam group at uh, week 12. So those are not that significant, really. Subject evaluations was also more favorable for the uh, topical hemostatic powder versus the gel foam there was no significant difference in the irritation, burning, and the pain, and there was no adverse event between the, uh, for the two groups anyway. So really the bottom line is here, again, you have something that's stopping the bleeding faster than the most commonly used hemostatic agent, which is gel foam, and then also it does um, have, wound healing-wise, it does have a positive effect. It makes the wound smaller or shrink faster than the gel foam. Uh, overall, but both products were safe and effective. 
So the bottom line is uh, you have a couple of new products that can be used either for wound healing or for hemostasis, and you can avoid the antibiotic resistance. You can avoid the contact dermatitis, uh, which is a big service to the community as well as to the patients uh, when you treat their wounds. Even simple wounds such as the shave biopsies, surgical wounds, even cryosurgery or Epidex or the topical 5-FU that, uh, that we use for AKs. Thank you for your attention. If you have any questions, I'll be more than happy to answer. Well, thank you very much. I had a question. Yes. Uh, a couple of questions. Thank you for sure. the lecture. Uh, when you did the, uh, the test with the Epidex. Where did you get the what? When you used the Epidex and then the Biofin. Yes. Did you stop the Epidex and then apply the biofin? Well, they had, uh, they had finished the Epidex treatment. They were inflamed already, and then we used the biofin. However, you certainly can, in my, this was a study, and that's why we designed it that way. In my clinical practice, every day, I gave them together. If I give an Epidex prescription, I give a biofin prescription at the same time so that they can use it. The, see, in the old days, we used to use the topical steroid. And the, there is the concern that if you don't get enough inflammation, maybe you're not really treating the AKs right, and it's sort of going to interrupt the uh, treatment of the AK. Well, in this case, you don't have that concern because it's not a steroid, and it's really not an anti-inflammatory. So it is okay to use it together. You're not going to take anything away from the effect of the 5-FU. Okay, thank you. Uh, second question sure. is uh, when you use the... Uh, the hemostatic power powder that was during your Mohs staging? Yes. Did you use any electrocautery? No, absolutely not. So then you just applied the powder or the and gel pressure. And pressure. Yeah, no electrocautery, no aluminum chloride, no MAN cells, nothing. We just used the powder versus a gel foam. Thank you very much. Yes. Have you had any experience using the biofin with uh, stasis ulcers, like on the legs? Did I have any what? Experience using the biofin with stasis ulcers? Uh, no. I've used it with st for stasis dermatitis, actually. But uh, I don't see that much stasis ulcers. You know, usually they go to the wound care center. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your attention.